You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Molly. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. You sound like you're about a million miles away. Well, I'm far away, but I'm not quite that far away. Well, we'll switch to a microphone in a moment. And then I'll give you the first of the three questions. Okay, sounds good. Are you where you're going to be? Are you standing next to some object there? Yes, I am. Okay. Now, why not get the microphone going so we can get rid of this phone line? Okay, just a second. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Molly is not in the studio. She's somewhere else. I don't know where. She's not in the state of California, but she's still in the country. At least I hope she is. Anyway, it's my task to discover where she is. Molly, how's the mic? Ready to switch over? Ready. There. Is that better? Much. Okay. So uh, even though you don't sound as far away, you still are. Okay. That's right. Now, the idea is that you can only ask three questions at a time, right? Right. Okay. And one of the questions can't be, where are you? Well, that's too bad because that's the one I wanted to ask. Okay, so my first set of questions will narrow things down a bit, or at least eliminate some of the continents. Then later on in the show, my next two sets of questions should focus in on you like an electron microscope. Okay. For this first set of questions, you'll need a little time to put together the answers. So are you ready for that? Yep, I'm all ready. Shoot. Okay, first question. What time did the sun rise at your location today? Okay, the sun rise. Okay, got it. Okay. Second question, what time zone are you in? Okay, I think I know that. Okay. And uh, third, at noon, it's nearly noon, right? Right, in a couple minutes it'll be noon. Okay, I want you to put a one-foot stick in the ground, or at least one foot sticking up above the ground. Measure the length of the shadow of the stick at noon. Okay, Uh, luckily I did bring a tape measure with me because I came prepared. Boy, you're a Boy Scout. I'll get back to you for the answers in a moment. Okay, actually Girl Scout. All right, just give me a few minutes. All right, while Molly hunts for a stick, I'm Seth Shostak, and she's Molly Bentley, and by the end of this episode of Big Picture Science, using only my wits and some advanced technology, only those things, I will determine exactly where Molly is, kind of like, where's Waldo? But also, I'll determine what artifact or feature she's standing next to. Now, we'll set some limits here. I get three sets of questions, three questions each set, and I can use other tools at my convenience. Archaeologists, think of archaeologists, they study ancient physical remains to try and understand the past. Astronomers, simply because the universe is large, inevitably are looking at objects in the past. Neither archaeologists nor astronomers can travel to that moment in history that really might interest them. They have to study from a distance. Uh, Molly, are you there? Yes, I'm still here, Seth, and I have the answers to your questions if you're ready. Wow, that was fast. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, the sun rose at 5.22 a.m. this morning. Okay, got that. I'm in the central time zone. All right. And the length of the shadow of that one-foot stick that I put into the ground here was four and a half inches. Four and a half. Okay. Now, with those three pieces of information, I can determine your latitude and longitude. Really? That's amazing. That's great. Yeah, well, it's, it's pretty easy. Now, the latitude, that comes from the four and a half inches, the length of the shadow of that one-foot stick, which at this time of the year, it's, you know, almost the summer solstice, means that your latitude is roughly 43 degrees north. The longitude's a little trickier. I can do that from the central time zone where you are in the 5.22 a.m. sunrise and a bunch of, you know, geometry. Well, it turns out that places you just shy of 90 degrees west of Greenwich. Now, where is that? So this is where the technology comes in, Molly. I'm going to search those coordinates using Google Earth. Okay, that's impressive though, Seth. You figured out latitude and longitude with just that information. Well, you know, it's been done for 400 years. (laughs) This is, by the way, a kind of space archaeology. I mean, determining from a few astronomical facts where Molly is and what object she's next to. 
Seth and I have our version of space archaeology, as he said, but for some, space archaeology refers to remote sensing. That's using satellite imagery to study ancient ruins, for example, which we'll hear about in the show. But this emerging and very intriguing field of science covers other subjects, too. For Alice Gorman, who's an archaeologist at Flinders University in Australia, space archaeology is the study of the objects and the culture of what we launch into the sky above our planet. When I talk about space archaeology, what I mean is the study of the places and the objects and the things and the ideas associated with space exploration in pretty much the post-war, post-Second World War period. So are you talking about the things that we've lofted off the surface of the Earth? You're not talking about missile gantries at Cape Canaveral or anything like that. You're talking about stuff that's actually made it up into space. Well, I'm talking about both, actually. So the stuff in space wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the places on Earth that developed and designed and manufactured and launched and monitored and tracked the things in space. So my perspective on this is very much that they're all tied together. So we have this network, this web of places and artifacts that are all related to this very specific historical and social phase or movement in human history. I can understand how archaeology might be applied to, for example, the landers on the moon or the flag that was planted there in 1969. I mean, that, that's historical. That would be like, I don't know, maybe finding the flag of Spain that Columbus had planted in the Caribbean, if you, if you could actually find that. I, I think it's mm -hmm. gone. But So that I can understand. But you also mentioned things we put into orbit. And most of the stuff we put into orbit is very functional and doesn't seem very cultural to me. It's really interesting you should say that. I think... There is a, a real tendency for people when they're looking at things from the past and whether they're worth keeping or not, there's a real tendency to go for things that are beautiful or pretty or have some kind of aesthetic value. And you're right, there's a lot of stuff in orbit that's not beautiful, it's very industrial, it's very mechanical. It can be hard to see the aesthetic value in those kinds of things. But when you take all of them together and you look at the development of satellite design and you look at how advances in technology have translated into the use of certain materials and services and structures, you can start to see patterns emerge that I think are really very, very interesting. For example, in the early days of satellite launch, well, many of the early satellites were just little aluminium spheres with antennas sticking out of them. So very simple and, and really quite um, beautiful in their own way. We don't use that design anymore. And just recently I was talking to a bunch of satellite manufacturers about why we don't use that design anymore. And in fact, there isn't any really good reason. There are many advantages to it. You look at that landscape, all those little metal and ceramic objects floating around out there, and they're the result of decisions made for particular reasons back on Earth. So they tell a story. They very much tell their own unique story. But, I mean, you know, how many of these things do you really need? I mean, there are tens of thousands of pieces of hardware orbiting the Earth right now, and surely we don't want to save all of them. In fact, it may be hard to save many of them. I think you have to look at spacecraft and the bits of them that have fallen off and exploded as something a bit different. So they're not just little isolated pieces whizzing around in Earth orbit. All together, they actually form a unique cultural landscape of their own. It's their relationship to each other is partially what makes them significant. And they're in a particular setting. So if you're looking at their cultural value, where they are is part of their importance. The example I always use for this is Vanguard 1, which is now the oldest human object in orbit. So it's still up there and it's likely to remain up there for several hundred years. But if we brought it back to Earth, how would that change its meaning? I would say it would change its meaning quite a lot. So, so its setting would be lost. It would no longer be the oldest human object in space. It would no longer be part of the landscape of all those very early satellites, of which there aren't really a terrible number remaining. We do have prototypes and engineering models and unflown satellites, all kinds of things back here on Earth. But in a sense, they're not authentic. They don't have authenticity. And one thing we do know is that people place a very different value on something that's been in space, something that has been flown, as opposed to something that hasn't. Otherwise, you wouldn't have people willing to pay hundreds and thousands of dollars to get possessions and, in some cases, their own ashes flown into space. So things that are in space have a very different value. We do have to get rid of some space junk. There's no doubt about that. 
However, we don't have to be indiscriminate about it. Alice, give me some other examples of things you would have preserved. I I hear that at least some of the things in orbit are worth preserving, if there's some way to do that. But, for example, tranquility base on the moon seems like an obvious thing to preserve. Is there any thought that it might not be? Tranquility base is an easy one, in a sense, because I don't think anyone would argue that it shouldn't be preserved, even though it is actually under threat by a number of proposals to to go back and salvage equipment. And uh, there was a company a little while ago proposing to sell the various things left there in order to finance its own operations. So I think everybody would agree Tranquility Base has a value, a cultural and historical value that's unique. There is no other place like Tranquility Base on the heavens or on Earth. So the question is how best to do that, and that probably will require some development of international principles of cooperation and further teasing out of what it means to to own or not own space. And I think we'll probably see over the next decade a lot of the treaties that currently exist will be revised and rethought. So that will obviously have an impact on the survival of places like Tranquility Base. It seems such a pity that we can't evaluate how important the things are that we're doing today. Talking to people, because one of the things I have been doing is oral histories with various people involved in space industry and space exploration. They don't necessarily always see themselves as part of a much larger trajectory. So when you say to them, you know, I'm really interested in this particular missile or rocket or tracking antenna that you are working in, they're kind of a little bit surprised. They're like, oh, why do you want to talk to me? So, well, I want to talk to you because I really want to know about this particular thing or this other thing. So it's kind of like people don't... They don't see themselves necessarily always as part of a bigger picture. So it is it can be hard for them to step back and say, right, you know, what I've done and my involvement with it is some kind of personal contribution to the greater whole and that's that has significance in its own right. And of course it's that the thing about it being so recent. There's an interesting contrast between modern technology being better than old technology and yet old technology having um, a historic significance that people don't necessarily apply to their own interaction with it. So having someone like an archaeologist whose job it is to do this kind of thing step back and try and make some kind of evaluation which people too closely involved with it aren't so good at doing is actually quite important to this process. Alice Gorman, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure, Seth. I'm not in Adelaide, Australia, but Alice Gorman is. That's where Flinders University is and where she's a lecturer in archaeology, specializing in space archaeology. Okay, Seth, have you figured out where I am? Well, I think so, Molly. I mean, your latitude and longitude, 89 degrees west, 43 degrees north, puts you, well, the nearest city there is Madison, Wisconsin. (laughs) Well done. That's right. That's right. Well, it's old school navigation, except that now I'm actually looking at Madison on Google Earth here. (laughs) I can feel you looking at me. Well, no, actually I can't because you can't see me yet. You don't know quite where I am. All right, next you have to figure out where exactly in Madison I am and what I'm standing next to. All right, I'll be ready with another set of questions. Next, my powers of deduction and tracking aliens through the cosmos. Could E.T. have left some artifacts behind? It's space archaeology on Big Picture Science. Investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Okay, Molly. 
I know that you're in Madison, Wisconsin, which, by the way, happens to be the capital of the state of Wisconsin. Very good, Seth. Did you have to look up that last bit? Hey, Molly, I learned my state capitals about the time I learned my capital letters. Okay. Not everybody knows that about Wisconsin, that the capital is Madison. Okay, but now, where exactly in the city am I? You have three more questions. All right. Scientists who study things long ago or far away have to be clever about their inquiries, too, Molly, so this is kind of familiar territory. (laughs) You being clever, you mean? Well, not that part. Okay. And your questions are? Are you more than 100 feet from any building taller than five stories? Uh, yes, I am. Oh, probably not downtown. Okay. Knowing something about this city from maps, I know it's riddled with lakes, remnants of the last ice age. How close are you to a body of water? Mm, I was prepared for that one. About 1,000 feet. 1,000 feet. Okay. That's interesting. 1,000 feet. That's pretty far in Madison. Now, because I know there's a Capitol building there somewhere... In what direction is the Capitol from where you are, and how far away is it roughly? Okay, so the Capitol building itself is about two and a fourth miles from where I am, and it's northeast of where I am. So I am southwest of the Capitol. Got it. Space archaeology includes the study of human artifacts in space and non-human-made artifacts. That is, it will if we find some. Economist Robin Hansen from George Mason University poses a thought experiment. Say some extraterrestrials have colonized space. If they're like the average American family on a cross-country vacation, they're probably leaving behind trash as they go. I mean, maybe not French fry wrappers and empty cans of Red Bull, but enough stuff that a discerning archaeologist's eye might interpret it as they were here, even if they didn't have us in mind. Yeah, it's not all about us. We're not the center of their attention necessarily, so we might want to think about what they're trying to do and what sort of effects they would have on the universe by trying to do what they want to do. Well, this is all predicated on the idea that space colonization, which after all is a staple of science fiction, could actually happen, that uh, some societies might leave their native planet, right? Yeah, if colonization isn't possible, then there's just a few scattered people very far away stuck on their planet, and maybe all you have to do is hear a few faint words from them. But if they can colonize, if they can spread out, then they might have spread out a long way, and in fact, they might have come here once before and passed us by. Wouldn't that require an unreasonably long-term commitment by some colonizing species? I mean, the Romans could conquer the Mediterranean in decades, maybe a century or so, but to colonize the galaxy, even if you can do it at nearly the speed of light, I mean, that that takes 100,000 years. Who's got the staying power. So the key assumption to realize here is that we're just going to say somebody will do something different. It's not about predicting what they want or what they like. It's just about imagining a large space of different aliens with different kinds of strategies, different kind of preferences, different kinds of attitudes toward things, and just realizing that if there's just one or two of them that take along some sort of strategy that allows them to reproduce in a colonization wave, then that can quickly expand to a vast colonization wave uh, spreading across hundreds of thousands of light years. Well, describe to me what that strategy is. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the Klingon expansion movement, and I've reached a couple of new stars, and then, you know, I decide I've had enough of that, and I'm just going to camp out and watch videos. I mean, well, what strategy do I need to keep the colonization going? Okay, so you've got one seed, one spaceship that just barely made it somewhere, intact and able to start reproducing. So you land and you start to grow. You could start to grow leisurely and explore and have a good time, or you could just go wild growing as fast as you possibly can. And you keep growing until your growth rate starts to slow down. And when it slows down enough, then it's time to leave. Then you take all the vast industry you've produced here and you convert it into making new starships that you send out to many, many distant locations. You might be spending a thousand or millions of these things out with the expectation that really on average only one of them is going to make it to the other end. So if you make a bunch of very leisurely safe spaceships, most of which will probably make it somewhere, you're not really taking enough chances. You're not on the cutting edge of going wild as far and as fast as you can. So you're suggesting that we should look for artifacts. We should look for some sort of evidence that somebody is either out there now or has been out there. Yeah, if there was a colonization wave that came by this way once upon a time, then there'll be two kinds of things to see around here. One is depleted resources, something they needed and used that's no longer here. And the other is trash, stuff they left behind on their way to their next place. To me, this sounds a bit like trying to prove that there was once a Roman Empire by looking around Europe and finding, you know, whatever, the, the paths taken by the legionnaires 2,000 years ago. I mean, is this, is this really a practical suggestion? 
Well, we do, in fact, know most of what we know about our distant ancestors by the trash they left behind, because the resources that they use mostly quickly regrow, but trash can last around. Uh, we don't know if that's true about aliens or not, but one thing to look for clearly is trash that might have been left behind. Well, when you say trash, give me an example of what you mean by trash. Clearly, it's not, you know, plastic containers stuffed to the gills with a plastic liner on them. What, what, what are you talking about here? <laughs> right. So the basic scenario would be they land somewhere, a tiny little seed, a tiny little spacecraft, and then they start building up a whole industry of stuff to grow to make new spacecraft that can send off to the next places. And then they have a bunch of powered spacecraft and seeds they send off to new places. And then along the way, a lot of those smash and die and never really make it somewhere useful to be another new seed to grow somewhere else. So there's going to be all these smashed and failed seeds and spacecraft that started off from one place but never quite got somewhere else useful. Would this colonization wave leave behind cities, for example, vibrant centers of civilization? Or would it just leave behind burned villages like Genghis Khan? Well, they wouldn't be trying to leave things any more than our distant ancestors tried to leave things, most of them. Now, some of our ancestors left monuments and things they intended to be seen for a while, but most of the trash and, and the things we see are when they were just trying to live their life and some of the things lasted longer. So what we should first see is some burned out or emptied out resources. Now, we're not sure what those might be. Maybe there's secret stashes of antimatter or something that nature produced, and those would just be gone. They'd be emptied. Then there'd be whatever long-lasting sort of materials they built up, they would have had some sort of infrastructure to produce things. And that infrastructure wouldn't have been intended to last, but maybe some of the pieces would last and we could find that infrastructure. Maybe, you know, big sturdy girders that held up the inside of an asteroid or whatever when they were making stuff. But the other thing we'll find is presumably just the leftovers of smashed starships trying to move along the way. But, but are you suggesting that we should be looking for actual interstellar rocket ships? I mean, we... we... We can't do that, right? We don't have telescopes that are nearly powerful enough to actually see such such craft, no matter which way they're moving. Well, it depends on how big or distinctive they are. But the two main strategies are we look either right around here for the remainders of a wave that must have gone past long ago, in which case we're looking for these empty shells, empty resources, and debris of failed starships. Or on the other hand, we look far out into space and hope we see some sort of asymmetric wall or shell of activity that's moving in some direction. It's all pretty abstract, so we don't know exactly what to be looking for. We don't know exactly what the best resources around here are, whether they're comets or asteroids or some special kind of star or black hole. And we also don't know quite what they'd make starships out of and what happens when they smash and what sort of pieces they leave when they smash. Uh, but once we understood better the right way to make a starship and the right way to grow some local capacity to make them, then we'd know better what to be looking for. Robin Hansen, thanks so much for talking to me. It was great to be here. Robin Hansen is Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Now, Seth, Robin mentioned leftover antimatter. What, what is that? Does that even exist? Well, the antimatter certainly exists. I mean, there's matter and there's antimatter. And in fact, if you're building a space rocket that you want to go really fast, the best engine you can have is a matter-antimatter rocket. I mean, the Star Trek Enterprise was that thing. So presumably, if there were any aliens that are using that kind of technology, maybe they left some antimatter, you know, behind, just some extra fuel, like a, a gas spot on the pavement. I don't know how we'd go about finding that. It's not easy. I, I'm not quite sure how we'd find it, unless there was really a lot of it. <laughs> okay. Part two. Now, have you figured out precisely where I am, Seth, by the information that I gave you just a little bit earlier? Well, in principle, I could. Give me a moment. I'm going to use the Google map here to vector you in on the Capitol building. Meanwhile, Robin Hansen is not the only space archaeologist with ET on the brain. Chris Rose works on communication theory at Rutgers University, and one of his theories is that the radio signals we hope to pick up from any aliens that might be out there, well, those signals might not be there because aliens might prefer to correspond in written form. Why is that, Chris? If you're not in a hurry, if it doesn't have to get there absolutely positively as fast as the speed of light, then it turns out to be really efficient from an energy perspective to write something down and toss it. Now, yes, listening is great, but when something is so much more energy efficient, you begin to think, you know, maybe there's something here and it should be investigated. It's not either or. Well, when you say energy efficient, that sounds to me like it might pay off if your message isn't short, you know, like a Twitter tweet. Maybe it doesn't matter how you send that. But if you're going to send something that's very extended, you know, here's our Library of Congress or whatever, then maybe energy efficiency counts? 
certainly. And I completely agree that for very short messages, like a beacon, you try to do something that's different, that radio astronomers universe-wide would recognize as different and say, hmm, there's something interesting there, and it's a short message. Yes, I think that radio is a wonderful sort of thing. But once again, if you want to send something long, writing it down is a very energy-efficient way. And again, as long as you don't have to get it there right away. But given galactic distances, right away is generally not an option anyway. Okay. Well, so uh, you're talking really about sending messages in a bottle. This idea has been likened to that. Can you give me a, a concrete picture of how that might work? How, how might they actually send a message in a bottle? What, what do they write the message on, and what's the bottle? Well, here's the, you know, it's an interesting sort of thing. There's so many different things you can write a message on. If you look at the efficiency of writing using laser printer paper, you can pack an incredible amount of information per kilogram using laser printers. But that's very unsophisticated. We can do much, much, much better than that. We can use things like atomic force microscopes to put atoms on substrates, and you can get incredibly high densities there. And the highest density that I know of is actually RNA or DNA. So if you think of strings of RNA and DNA as sequences of bits, which you can, you can pack a lot of information into things like DNA and RNA. Are you talking about living DNA or just using the molecule? I'm looking at, I'd say, just using the molecule. But, you know, there's a variety of different things. You could do it organically. You could do it inorganically. The thing that matters is how dense the information is per kilogram, which is kind of a weird unit, right? Bits per kilogram. But <laughs> that's the thing that comes out. Well, another advantage is that unlike a radio signal, the, the message, since it's written down, if you will, it, it could hang around until someone found it. A, a radio message just goes right by your planet, and if you're not there, you're not listening, or you're not technologically advanced yet, you miss it. But this could sort of hang out like those monoliths in the movie 2001. That's something that, uh, you know, I thought about. There's the issue of getting it there, decelerating it. There's, you know, a bunch of different complications. But even when you add in all those complications, you end up with this big number in terms of efficiency. So certainly, if you're not there, you don't hear the message. But if it's kind of hanging around, then it's there to be found. But again, we're getting back to motivation. What is my motivation for sending this message out? And, you know, that's a tough one. Well, there is what seems to me to be a pretty big disadvantage for interstellar mail. I mean, whom do you send these messages to? A, a radio broadcast, after all, could reach millions of star systems, but a rocket with, with a message on it, that might only reach one star system and at considerable cost. I mean, don't you need to know who's at the receiving end before you do this? That's an excellent question, and that was one of the first things we looked at. Well, it turns out that these relative efficiencies are so enormous that just imagine that the universe was filled with stars just like our Milky Way, no galaxies, just a one huge galaxy. And what you had to do is you had to send a message to each and every star in that galaxy. Well, it turns out that the break-even point for where matter gets less efficient than radio, you'd have to have a galaxy about 10 times the size of the visible universe, packed with stars, just like the Milky Way. So again, these numbers are huge. So that point is well taken. You know, you have to send a message to each and every star. But the efficiencies of matter are so huge that it doesn't matter. It's still more efficient than radio from an energy perspective. Well, Chris, this makes it sound that there could be just tons of, literally tons of messages scattered throughout the galaxy awaiting our discovery. But how do you find one of these things? And that's the killer issue. That's something that I haven't been able to formulate from a strictly communication theory standpoint. That's a tougher thing. How do you actually specify the reception problem in strict communication theory terms? So that is an issue. Now, we can muse about it. If you don't know what's out there in the first place, one of the things that you might send are um, probes. So you could send things that replicate themselves. Who knows? Maybe there's some insertion in our biome of these sorts of things over the millennia. That I don't know. I haven't formulated the problem. So that's a uh, communication theory thing that I haven't done. But that's a very good point. You know, is it in that grain of sand? Oh, no, might be another grain of sand. Which one? That's a tough problem. <laughs> well, well, should we look at the moon? I mean, there's no weather on the moon to destroy a bottled message. Or, or is that just too much Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> I love that. My feeling is that if these artifacts exist, that's the first thing. 
mean, there's a whole bunch of suppositions here, you know, that we are not alone. But if we are not alone, and if these messages exist, my guess is they'll be discovered in passing. Something interesting will pop up, and you'll say, what is this? And that's the way that it'll be discovered. But again, that's very unsatisfying from, you know, for me as a communication theorist. I'd love to be able to put a number on it and say uh, it's more efficient, or whoop, we should stick with radio because uh, all in, matter is less efficient. So it sounds to me, Chris, that if you had to bet on uh, which approach might be more successful in turning up uh, extraterrestrial intelligence, you might bet on accidental discovery of uh, some message hanging around in place of these deliberate SETI searches. One thing that folks have tried to do over the years, and I find it very counterproductive, is set this matter idea against a radio idea. So I look at it as these are two modalities that should be seriously considered. We already have a bunch of machinery up that's doing great astronomy that can also look for signals. Let's keep that. We should not shut down looking for radio signals. However, we should probably also keep our eyes open for these sorts of artifacts or what might be artifacts. Christopher Rose, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me and not via the U.S. Postal Service today. (laughs) Thank you, Seth. It's a pleasure as always. Christopher Rose is Professor of Computer and Intellectual Engineering at Rutgers University. So, Seth, it's, it's kind of an interesting idea. I mean, the idea that it's easy to listen for radio signals, but as far as sending a message, it's much more efficient. I mean, it costs less energy to write something down. Yep. But, you know, if any aliens have actually tried to communicate, well, I don't know how we'd ever find out. And if the aliens left something behind, it might be very far away and easy to miss. Well, that's true, but that's what astronomy and cosmology deal with all the time. I mean, the most interesting things are always far away and way back in time as a consequence. Astronomy is an observational science, which is to say, usually you just can't go into the lab and do an experiment. You have to use your telescopes and try and and see what's out there. So a lot of the major discoveries in astronomy have been made by people who just, they didn't even know what they were looking for, but they just looked everywhere. They just mapped the sky, or they examined, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of, of stars or whatever. But there are tools that anyone can use to do archaeology of the Earth. Google Earth, which I've been using today, is the ultimate atlas. It brings the world to you in high resolution, but why stop there? Explore Earth's satellite and the rusty, dusty planet with Google Earth and Google Mars without having to risk a rocket ship ride. Tiffany Montague is in charge of Google Space Initiatives, and her business card reads, believe it or not, Intergalactic Federation, King Almighty, Commander of the Universe. What I think is so wonderful about Google Earth is the fact that People from anywhere around the globe are able to see things um, that they may not have the opportunity to explore in the flesh, and it helps them to be better global citizens. Uh, for a lot of people, I think, uh, when they think of Google Earth, they think about, oh, well, I'll go find my house and, you know, and see whether my car is parked in the driveway or whatever. But are there some real science benefits to having this instant access to every acre on Earth? Absolutely. Look, the future explorers, maybe planetary explorers of tomorrow, are the armchair archaeologists, space explorers of of today using Google Earth. What about extending Google Earth beyond the Earth, extending Google Earth into space? I know you're interested in space, so we, we already have Google Moon and Google Mars. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about them. Google Moon and Google Mars, uh, they are fantastic products that allow people to have an immersive experience uh, audio, uh, snippets, video. It's an, it's an amazing environment with which to explore the lunar landscape. Uh, just a sort of a matter of curiosity, since Google is, after all, a commercial company, I can understand how you might be able to commercialize Google Earth because you might have restaurants located or other commercial enterprises. But, you know, Google Moon, Google Mars, I mean, the number of good restaurants in either of those particular places doesn't seem to be excessive. So uh, my, my question is, why do you do it? We look at space exploration like we look at any other engineering problem, right? This is something that we, we look at and we say, hey, why shouldn't space be open and accessible to everyone? Even as we sit here at Google headquarters, Tiffany, there are spacecraft that are mapping some of the moons of Saturn. We've mapped some of the moons of Jupiter and so forth. Now, are, you know, are we going to see uh, Google Enceladus or Google 
uh, Europa, Google Titan, something like that? Well, I suppose there there could be some interesting life on on Europa, right? Living living under the ice caps. You, you might not see them in the, but then again, on Google Moon, you don't see a whole lot of life. Right. I mean, but but are you going to extend the, the the Google exploration capability to the rest of the solar system as that information becomes available, or do you say, look, we've done enough? We've sort of done enough for now. What the future holds, we we don't know. It'll sort of depend what information we collect as a spacefaring race. So it sounds like this idea of searching the Earth, the Moon, Mars from space, uh, that, uh, that's sort of in your charter. After all, Google is a search company. And I, I kind of like the idea that we could explore these distant realms without uh, the dust, the dirt, the tedium, and the danger. <laughs> well, our mission is to organize the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. So that drive, that thirst for knowledge, the, the passion for information, it's not going to stop the exosphere. It is going to continue out into the universe. It's full of information. And when we find it, we are going to index it and make it searchable. Tiffany Montague, thanks so much for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. Tiffany Montague is an engineer and the Intergalactic Federation King Almighty Commander of the Universe at Google Incorporated. It's all very interesting, and I know you've relied on Google Earth to help pinpoint where I am. So where am I, Seth? Well, in a moment, Bonnie, in a moment. That comes next, along with tracking Alexander the Great from space. It's Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Molly, we now know you're somewhere in Madison, Wisconsin. And given what you said earlier, that you're near water and you're southwest from the Capitol building about two and a quarter miles. Yeah, near water. Okay, I think you're somewhere near Lake Wingra. Did I get that? Lake Wingra. That's right. That's right. Very good. Well, looking at Lake Wingra, it's not, you know, it's not fronted by high-rises or condos. It looks kind of marshy from here, <laughs> uh, at least on Google Earth. <laughs> it is. Okay, so you, so you have a map in front of you. Is that it, of, of this area? I do, yeah. And I have a little okay. bit of time left to figure out what object you're standing next to. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to use only my deductive skills and some highly advanced technology here almost advances my skill set. Okay, so how are you going to figure out what I'm standing next to? Well, this is something that has an analog to, to objects in space, right? I mean, it's something that actually occurs more than once, but there may not be that many around, and it has some scientific interest. Now, is that one of your three questions? No, no, that's just a sneaky way to establish the parameters. <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Yes to all you said, although almost anything has scientific interest. Well, that's true. Okay, my last questions will depend on my looking at a detailed road map, not, not this satellite view of Madison. I think I have three questions left. First, I doubt you're standing in a marsh, so are you on a drive as opposed to, say, a street or an avenue? To say that I'm on a drive is close. That's very close, yes. And so you have two questions left. Do you want to think about it? Uh, yeah, I think I do. Meanwhile, we've heard about space archaeology as a study of the objects associated with space exploration and as it relates to possible alien artifacts. But it is also, literally, traditional archaeology conducted from space. Using remote sensing, that is satellite imagery, and ground-penetrating radar. And by using these techniques, archaeologists can study ancient ruins without using a shovel, a pick, or even disturbing one grain of sand. NASA's Compton Tucker's field site is in Turkey, where he and his team are mapping the spot where Alexander the Great cut King Midas's Gordian Knot. 
Alexander the Great had come into Asia Minor in about 300 BC to fight the Persians who were occupying the region we now know as Turkey. But how did Alexander find his way to this knotty problem? It's documented that he went first to Troy, the side of Troy from the Trojan War, where it's reported in his chronicles that somehow he found the armor of, of Achilles and put it on. And then he went on, and uh, the next city where it's documented he went to is the site of Gordian. And Gordian is the home, or was the home, of King Midas and the Phrygians. And at the time, Gordian was well known for having what is referred to as the Gordian Knot, which was an intractable knot which resided in the city. And the prophecy was, whomever could untie the knot would become the emperor of Asia, or the conqueror of Asia. And when Alexander arrived, he was thwarted by trying to untie the knot, so he pulled out his sword and he cut the knot, hence the expression, cutting the Gordian knot, which means a clever solution to a very difficult question. It's documented that Alexander did this. He did this in 333 BC. Molly, that sounds like the Indiana Jones approach. Remember that scene in the film when a bad guy was attacking him with a, a sword? Pretty impressively, too. And Indiana, he just smirks, he pulls out a pistol, and he shoots him. Right, that's a pretty straightforward approach if there was one. Today, Compton Tucker and his team continue a series of excavations that have been going on in Gordian since the 1940s. By using very advanced technology, the team can survey the area with minimal disturbance and also stay a few steps ahead of the plunderers and the tomb robbers. But Compton, satellites are hundreds of miles above Turkey. How can they possibly see anything of interest? You're exactly right that we're using space technology and very modern technology on the ground to learn more about an archaeological site which goes back almost 3,000 years. And we're especially interested in this period of time in the first millennium BC, from 7 or 800 BC up through the Greek and Roman period of occupation. And what we do is we use satellite data to have a common mapping basis where the smallest point we can see in the satellite data is something on the order of 50 or 60 centimeters. Do I understand this correctly? It isn't that you're actually looking for evidence of the archaeological features of this area. What you're doing is you're using the satellite simply to keep track of the digs, or are you actually trying to see where you should dig? We're doing both. We're doing exploration with these new techniques using radar and magnetometry, and then we're also working on the common mapping basis so everything from the site can go into the same digital database with a high degree of accuracy. Isn't it the case that a few years ago, satellites were able to, for example, see things from space that you actually wouldn't notice on the ground because, you know, being on the ground, you're too close to them, such as uh, remnants of old uh, paths that were part of this Silk Road from uh, the Far East back to Europe, things like that. Is that somewhat similar to what you're trying to do there? Yes, it is. That's exactly what we're doing. And sometimes if you have observations from space, and they can be either very, very detailed observations, which would look like aerial photographs, or they could be radar surveys from space, you find features which are obscured on the ground, either because of the scale or because of vegetation. And this is the basis for NASA's space archaeology program, which promotes the use of space assets to help in archaeological surveys. Can you give me some examples of the sorts of things that you've seen? Yes. For example, there's a very interesting project that was written up a few months ago in the New York Times where one of NASA's space archaeology projects looked under tropical forests in the Mayan area of Central America, and they were using lasers which can penetrate through leaves, and they were able to map the subsurface or the sub-tree canopy topography and find actual Mayan ruins that have been overgrown by vegetation. And if you were to walk along on the ground, you would miss them because they were completely covered in tropical forest vegetation. But when you have this perspective of looking down and can actually measure heights to a very high accuracy of a few centimeters, it was obvious. You could see roads, you could see causeways, you could see temples. Have you found similar features there in central Turkey? I mean, you don't have a, a big forest canopy covering up the ground. No, one of the things which we're doing is we're using magnetometry and ground penetrating radar. So we have a ground penetrating radar, looks like a big suitcase that you drag along the surface of the ground. You lay out a grid so you know precisely where you are. And this sends radar signals down into the earth. And if they encounter metal or air spaces or, or buried bodies or things like this, 
you will then get a return, which you also receive in the same suitcase-like antenna. And from this, you get a non-destructive survey of areas. If you have to dig and explore that way, it's destructive, it's time-consuming, and very expensive. So we're able to survey areas and then say, in this area, there's a very high probability of finding things. Here's where we think they are, and here's what we think they are. Okay, so... You can see what's down there, 10, 15 feet. That's quite incredible. Do you get any idea of the shape of these things? I mean, what sort of information does it give you? Well, you can tell the general shape, and what you're looking for are other features. For example, if you're looking for a tomb, there will be a tomb chamber, and you'll see some rectilinear feature. And furthermore, you, you can reconstruct that in three dimensions because when you perform these surveys, you get the length and the width of the feature, and from the radar, you get the height. And so you not only know what is there, but at what depth it starts to appear and how deep it goes. Compton, this idea of using satellites and then the ground-penetrating radar, it sounded to me like this was going to allow you to do archaeology without leaving the comforts and the confines of your home office. But that's not true. You actually have to go out into the Turkish uh, highlands there. The desert, really, it's, it's not a pleasant place, and haul this radar around. I mean, is that actually an improvement? Yes, but I think we should realize that probably most people have at one time thought about being an archaeologist, whether it was from seeing Indiana. Jones movies or whatever. And it's hard work under hot conditions, but it's a lot of fun and it's not work at all. You get one day a week off. You start work at six o'clock every morning. You have breakfast at 530. And then in the afternoon and evening, you download your data and you analyze it. And one of the beauties of these non-destructive surveys from magnetometry and from ground penetrating radar is once they're done, then the archaeologists can decide where they want to dig, where they want to excavate. And it's also very useful because this identifies sites of high importance, and they can then be protected against looters, and they can be excavated very quickly. How long have you been doing this, and what have you found? I've been doing this since 2000. Some of the things we've found is we've mapped a lot of walls. We've also mapped roads where they go. We have mapped an area at Gordian, which is called the Common Cemetery. And this is because it is a cemetery which was put in use probably about 3000 BC up through the Roman period of occupation of Gordian. So should they decide to excavate again in that area, they'll have a very good idea of where they should excavate and where they shouldn't. Have you uh, changed any history so far? I mean, so far not. What we have done is collect this basic data, which will then serve as the basis for subsequent archaeological excavations. Now, one time when I was working in the Granicus River Valley of Turkey, we surveyed several tumuli, a burial structure which will have a tomb chamber or at least a sarcophagus, and then a big mound of earth is piled around it. We mapped one of those sites with ground penetrating radar. We identified at which depth and in which location we thought there would be a burial sarcophagus. When we excavated, when we got to that location, we found it had been robbed by the Romans, and they had carried everything off, and we found just the remnants of what they left behind, including several Roman lamps, because they had tunneled in using these lamps to light their way as they tunneled in. That was kind of interesting, but we were very disappointed we didn't find something of more importance like a sarcophagus or a tomb chamber. But someone else had found it in antiquity before us. Well, indeed, but their efforts are also of interest to archaeologists. Yes. You know, this is such a revolutionarily different approach to archaeology that I just can't believe that, you know, your phone isn't ringing all day, every day, with archaeologists that call you up and say, look, we want to try doing it this way. We're tired of getting down in the dirt with these small little uh, spades and shovels and, you know, screens and stuff like that. Uh, yes, we have a lot of offers to work elsewhere, and uh, the only problem is we just don't have enough time. Now, fortunately, we have universities which train people in these techniques, but this is a growing area of archaeology to get basic information about sites and do it fairly quickly and do it non-destructively and do it, most importantly, in a quick and economical way. Tucker, one of the motivations for doing archaeology, as it were, by remote control, if not, well, maybe not remote control, but doing it without actually digging into the ground is that you can perhaps forestall the looting of sites. But you've actually had some interest from looters to use your technique. Yes. A few times we've been approached by questionable people who want us to go and do something and or go somewhere else and, and try our techniques there. And we always say no. Do they offer you money? I mean, what's the deal there? I mean, what, are they going to you know split the profits if they find something valuable? <laughs> 
Well, it hasn't reached that point in any discussion or negotiations with them, but they asked us if we have time, and we always say no because we have a limited field season. Some colleagues of mine who do this professionally have been approached to go to sites, survey them for Nazi gold in Greece, as well as a wide range of archaeological sites where you know people are probably going to use the information to plunder, and they always say no, but you don't know who you're dealing with. They could be big crooks, or they could just be pulling your leg. Compton Tucker, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Compton Tucker is a scientist with NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Okay, Seth, you're narrowing in to where I am, and you're right that I'm on a drive. Do you know which drive I'm on? Well, looking at this map, I only see one. Looks like Arboretum Drive. Is that possible? Very good. Very good. Now, how are you going to pinpoint it, it exactly? Well, I have a University of Wisconsin Arboretum map because that shows the entire Lake Wingra area, at least the part that I think you're in. Oh, well done. Okay. And uh, I'm looking at it in the, the drive there, Arboretum Drive. You said you were on a drive, and there are a whole bunch of things there, woods and, and springs and cabbage patches, and I don't know. Uh, can I ask a question? I think you have two questions left. All right. First question, is this some place that has real historic significance? <laughs> yes, it does. Ah, uh, I think I know then, because probably the golf course doesn't have historic significance, but I bet these Indian mounds do. Well done. That's exactly where I am. So I'm standing in the woods here. There are a group of four Native American burial mounds right around me. They're about a thousand years old. I can't get that close to them. I mean, I really can't walk on them, but I can see them from here. They're just these sort of raised areas in the forest here. Not much is known about the people who made them, and scientists say it's kind of tricky to infer the culture and what was what was going on here exactly. But we do know that the mounds are in the shape of birds and animals and other geometric forms. Do the grounds still contain human remains? No, none of the grounds here do contain human remains, and that was determined by ground-penetrating radar. And what is intriguing, though, Seth, is that early writing suggests that there are three groups of burial mounds in this area, and the archaeologists only know of two. So the search is on for where the third one might be or what its fate was. So that's reporting from just off of Arboretum Drive in Madison, Wisconsin, at the Indian burial mounds here in the Arboretum. Wow, that sounds really interesting, Molly. I wish I could see it. Could you take a photo with your cell phone or something? (laughs) Better than that, I have a camera with me. So I'll take a photo right now, and uh, I'll post it on our blog. Nice work, Molly. Nice work. Nice work on your part, Seth. I'm impressed. Well, that's it for our show. We hope you found it interesting. Thanks to our producer, Gary Niederhoff, production assistant, Barbara Vance, and volunteer, Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, the NASA Astrobiology Institute, and the SETI Institute. And thanks also to you, our listeners. You can find Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And if you're a podcast listener but prefer over-the-air radio, well, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Okay, Molly, will I see you in the studio next week? Yes, and I'll be covered with mosquito bites. The mosquitoes here are bigger than circus tents. (laughs) Do you need any directions? No, I think I can find the studio, Seth, but I know whom to call if I can't. 